For sports content from the biggest leagues and competitions across the world, look no further than Reuters Connect, Reuters online news content platform. Reuters Connect makes finding the sports content you need easy, whether it's in-depth reporting from Reuters journalists or access to video highlights from around the world. Bring the world of sport directly to your workplace with Reuters Connect. For more information and a free trial, visit ReutersConnect.com. Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Ricardo. Each week, we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sports professor Rick Haro, and you are keeping score Inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, America's sporting event, maybe the world's. Super Bowl 55, the only Super Bowl hosted by the home team. Economic impact in Tampa, not as big as normal. Half the fans could drive, and the other half have trouble getting in because of the 22,000-seat restrictions. And the NFL has cut hospitality and tried to get as much worth as they can out of the $5.6 million 30-second spots. But significant interviews today, we'll get to them in a couple of minutes. One, an anniversary interview, and the second, a tribute. But before we do that, deal-making issues three to one. Three. Number three, Golf Data Tech in its 2020 National Golf Performance Report talked about record-breaking successes in the industry. Rounds up by 14%. Equipment sales increased by over 10%. The 13.9% increase in rounds the largest total year increase since Golf Data Tech began collecting and projecting rounds played in 1998, topping the previous largest increase of 5.7% in 2012. The 10.1% improvement in retail sales bettered the previous all-time high percentage gain of 10% in 2005. 2020 spending reached near record levels. Overall golf equipment sales, $2.8 billion, the third largest total of all time trailing behind only 2008, $2.9 billion, and 07, $2.87 billion. Despite the on-course and retail success, apparel sales dipped by about 14%, and golf apparel predominantly sold through on-course golf shops, but due to COVID-19, many shops not fully operational, which is understandable. An 11% increase in total apparel sales over the final two months of 2020 were a hopeful sign heading into 2021. Two. Number two. The MLS and its Players Association have agreed to extend the negotiating deadline for a new CBA, but the league added a new element to those talks by authorizing a lockout if the deal isn't reached by midnight Thursday. The LA Times reported the potential work stoppage would be the first in the league's 26-year history. The primary issue separating the sides is the length of the agreement. MLS seeking a deal that would run through 2027 and the players wanting it to end a year earlier. MLS said that extending the labor agreement for two seasons and blocking pay increases for a year would save a little more than $100 million, and the union wants the labor agreement to end after 2026, the year North America hosts the World Cup, with attorney expected to inspire a huge interest and spending on soccer. It's the third time in less than a year that MLS and its players have been involved in labor talks. Last February, they reached an agreement on a five-year deal, but it was not ratified before the pandemic. 
That's deal-making issue number two. One. Former Oakland Raiders head coach Tom Flores is now 83, the finalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The final announcement, obviously pending, Baylor's David Aranda, UNLV's Marcus Arroyo, New Mexico's Danny Gonzalez, Miami's Manny Diaz, Oregon's Mario Cristobal are heading the list of existing FBS head coaches who are Hispanic. Andy Avalos is hiring at Boise State also. And when Ron Rivera took the Washington football team to the NFL playoffs this year, Brian Flores won 10 games with the Miami Dolphins at a time when the spotlight is on a lack of minority head coaching hires in football, just two in the NFL and two in college in this cycle, Hispanic coaches hope their recent success in landing jobs is a sign of things to come. Forty years after Super Bowl wins, the increase in Hispanic head coaches gives Flores hope that more are doing the same in the next generation. And that's deal-making issue number one. It's time for Enid Viana's Lifestyle Minute. She's the editor, member of two websites, evsocial.com, which covers entertainment, wellness, fashion, and travel, and hamptonsmoms.com, which addresses all things family on Long Island's Magical East End. She also contributes content to various magazines and websites, such as Hamptons Magazine and ArtSugar.com. Follow her on Instagram at the EV Social and Hamptons Moms. She talks about the Super Bowl, clearly the biggest weekend of the year, and guessed it, it's the Super Bowl taking place this week, feels like this year altogether. What a different year it'll be. No pre-parties, no Budweiser Clydesdales, 22,000 versus 66,000, introducing touchless toilets for COVID Bowl, but let the games begin. This year will certainly go down in history as the strangest Super Bowl, and obviously the safest but the lack of many fans will allow for even more cameras capturing Brady's every pass from every possible angle. So we got that going for us, which is nice. 2020 was a tough year for small businesses and a really heartwarming to see Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports really take the lead in giving back to small businesses by raising over $33 million for over 200 businesses. Thanks, Dave, for proving to us that we really are all in this together and will come out stronger. That's Enid's lifestyle minute and our interviews turn to football first the anniversary interview with paul tagliabu we said we would play it again to see what his predictions were we did this a year ago last super bowl time paul tagliabu a good friend contributor to the sport business handbook nfl commissioner from 1989 to 2006 during his tenure significantly increased the value of franchises overall revenues Browns committed to Cleveland, the Houston Texans, the Baltimore Ravens, 28 to 32 teams, NFL Europe, and navigated a series of controversies and issues like, do you play after 9-11? What happens in Arizona with the Martin Luther King Day? And what happens in New Orleans after Katrina? All of these significantly important, and you'll hear how he handles it. And it's not just football. He's on and been on the Knight Commission and the chairman of the Georgetown University Board of Trustees, 2009 to 2015. And by the way, I don't know if we knew this, but he led Georgetown in rebounding on the basketball court for a while before some of the other centers like Pat Ewing took over. But Paul Tagliabu, incredibly significant in the industry, good friend, great perspective. I give you Paul Tagliabu in his anniversary interview first broad question the nfl as a 
social change agent. There have been a lot of things that have happened recently, but broadly defining your role as you saw it to kind of steer the NFL to a path to maximize social change or to help. Well, I always had the idea that uh, the NFL was about three C's, competition, collaboration among the teams through the league, and community. So it was, it was always a piece of, of my thinking, and, and that comes from Pete Rozelle. He, he thought the same way, and he, he was the one who started the United Way uh, advertising campaign to take the helmets off the players, and he encouraged all the teams to be an integral part of the community, just as college football was. United Way is a good example. How important was that United Way NFL relationship? It still goes on, but it was watershed in a way. It was certainly watershed. You know, Commissioner Rozelle, as I said, started it when I took over in 89. The advertising commitment to the United Way was very, very substantial. But more importantly, we wanted the teams to be involved with the local United Ways. So I went on the board of the National United Way right after I became commissioner in order to encourage each of the individual teams to be more deeply ingrained in their own communities. Let's talk about some kind of seminal moments in a lot of people's perspective when you were commissioner and your reflection back on them. The first game that you either attended or pointed out after September 11 in Kansas City. What made that game so special? It was the Giants playing against the Chiefs and so you had a New York team in the heart heartland of America. And uh, I was there with Gene Upshaw, the two conference presidents were there, Wellington Mara and Lamar Hunt, who obviously was the owner of the Chiefs. But when, when the Giants took the field, there was a roar of applause for the Giants. And that doesn't happen too often in Arrowhead Stadium. No. They, they're pretty rabid and they're pretty one-sided. They're great, great fans. But that was, that was, uh, it was a sign of how America was at that time. Unfortunately, that's not where we are today. It also is a sign, I would think, of how important sports is as a healing agent. And clearly, not just in Kansas City, but around the country. Talk about that for a second. Well, I think it is. And, uh, you know, why is it a healing agent? I think it's partly because it's a distraction from uh, the workaday things that people have to do. But more importantly, I think it's, it's the essence of competition, but it's competition based on teamwork. So you have both ingredients at the same time. You have teamwork on one side and competition between the two sides. And that's a, that's a microcosm of life. So eight years earlier, it's 1993, and you chose to take a stand to move the Super Bowl from Phoenix because of the Arizona stance not ratifying the uh, Martin Luther King holiday. Successful outcome, obviously the goal of using the leverage and the business awareness the NFL brought to the table to make some meaningful social change there. Was it a difficult decision and did it work out the way you wanted it to work out? Well, it was difficult to take that decision, but uh, you know, before I was heavily involved, the Super Bowl host committee and the league's Super Bowl committee had conversations about what would happen if the King holiday was not in place. So it was not a surprise. It was something that was part of the conversations going forward. Maybe people didn't think that the league would make good on what it had said, which is that it would not play the game unless the King holiday was passed. And then when, when it was passed, when we did adopt it, it was deferred, as you said. It was not canceled. It was not terminated. So we tried to have a balance between taking a position that was definitely an important position to take, but not being punitive. Roles of franchises in communities. Let's talk about Katrina and the work that you did. And I saw it firsthand with the governor and mayor of, uh, of New Orleans to basically keep the franchise afloat, literally and figuratively, and not move it or allow it to move to San Antonio. And that has to be one of the greatest 
social change moments as far as how far a league can go to protect a community's trust and interest in a franchise. Well, you know, New Orleans was uh, an outgrowth of the merger of the American Football League and the NFL. New Orleans had brought a lot to the NFL over the years, but I, I felt that whether it was New Orleans or Houston or any other city that could be the subject of a tragedy, that we owed it to the community to walk the last mile. We, we expect communities to walk the last mile in support of our teams, and we had to do it for them. And, and that was, my perspective was what my parents used to tell me. A friend in need is a friend indeed, so be a friend to people in need. And you were the Tagliaboo Initiative for LGBT Life at Georgetown. Talk about that and then talk about how we think the whole LGBT and gay rights and diversity issues have progressed since you left as commissioner. Well, the initiative at Georgetown was uh, probably a decade ago at this point. I had gone on to the Georgetown Board of Directors and the president of the university was working with students to try to make it the place more welcoming to LGBTQ students. And uh, my wife and I decided that we would endow that program at the university. We have a son who's gay, who heads a gay rights organization in New York City, so it was close to our home. But Georgetown was close to me for many, many years, and I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for Georgetown. Not to mention, weren't you the all-time rebound leader at Georgetown for like a minute? For a few seasons I was, more than a minute. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. Uh, was, it, uh, was it Alonzo Mourning? Who, who then wiped your record out? Which, which uh, Sam? I think it might have been Craig Shelton, followed by about 15 other players. Craig Shelton is not the name I wanted to deal with. How about Patrick Ewing? Or what? Patrick Let's, was we'd part We'd reinvent of it. history. Patrick part was part of it. Got it, got it. All right, let's, let's, get, let's get serious again for an issue that I, I know is, is really important to you, which is the whole uh, role model and responsibility of the NFL. There's been so much um, discussion and turbulence uh, the NFL has done a lot in a lot of people's estimation, committees, dollars, research, um, player activism. Give me your 30,000-foot uh, report card of how the league has done in these issues uh, since you've uh, left uh, um, your tenure at the NFL. I think the league has done very well in a, in a difficult environment. And what I mean about a difficult environment was the onset of a hyper-connected society with people able to communicate in ways that they never communicated before, and videos being taken of everything that goes on. So your, the scrutiny that you're subjected to by the technology is extraordinary. Given, in that context, I think what the League has done to take the initiatives that you alluded to has been very, very positive and, and, for the most part, very well thought out. So finally, where does where's the League generally, way too general a question, Where's the league five years from now? Well, based on what I'm reading, it may be that there'll be more uh, football in London and even Frankfurt. But I, th you know, I think the key thing is to keep the competition on the field the way it has always been. And as far as I can tell, that's going to continue five years from now with the Patrick Mahomes and the others who are out there fitting into the shoes of Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and Ben Roethlisberger and others. The key to me is to keep uh, those who have the long-term interest in the NFL at heart uh, engaged and interested, meaning you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good that. to be here. Well, Paul Tagliabue, really important, obviously, and one of the things that he does is stresses youth football as well. And a sad state for the NFL and a sad state in our country with all of the coronavirus numbers. We're glazing over, and sometimes we don't understand how it impacts the family broadly defined. I give you Tim Lester. He was called the bus driver. He was the great blocker and special teams member for Jerome Bettis with the Champion Steelers and Emmett Smith, Cowboys. He graduated from Miami Southridge High School, Eastern Kentucky University, 
and ended up being a very significant Pop Warner enthusiast and supporter in Atlanta and in North Florida, South Georgia, Milton High School Fellowship Christian. He died on January 12 of coronavirus. He will clearly be missed, but one of the things that was important for his spirit when we interviewed him at a Pop Warner Super Bowl event was how important football was in his life and the life of kids. I give you Tim Lester. So tell me the story about your kind of entry in the NFL um, and how you ended up with the Steelers and then uh, uh, how you were called a bus driver, basically. Well, you know, growing up in uh, Miami, you know, with like six brothers and one sister, uh, my mom had to keep us busy. And uh, I remember she would send us to, the, to a store and she would have us run up to the store to get a loaf of bread. Because when you got six brothers and one sister, you know, you, you know, you go through bread real fast. Yeah. So my oldest brother, she sent him up there to run up there to get the loaf of bread, and he ran back and ran up and ran back, and he went into the military. And then I saw my, uh, my youngest brother, my second brother, he ran up, he ran back, and he made one bad mistake, and it kind of messed up his life. And so my mom said she's going to start to get us, keep us busy. So uh, she started us to playing football um, over at South Day Optimus in Goose Park, and it, it kind of kept us busy. And... Um, after graduating from um, high school, I got an offer to uh, Eastern Kentucky University. And um, after signing that scholarship, I got hit by a semi-truck and I was in a coma, had internal bleeding. And pretty much everything I had worked for that day was over. But, you know, the coach called me, Coach Roy Kidd called me and he said, hey, Tim, he said, um, if you don't come to school now, you're going to lose your scholarship. And I was like, coach, I said, man, I just came out of coma. He said, yeah, but uh, you need to get up here. If not, you're going to lose your scholarship. And I remember getting up out that bed and going off to school and uh, pretty much uh, living out my dream, playing four years at Eastern Kentucky University, graduating, getting drafted uh, by the uh, LA Rams in the 10th round pick. Uh, ended up blocking for Jerome over there and um, moving to Pittsburgh, playing uh, four years in Pittsburgh. And he nicknamed me the bus driver, he became the bus. And then my last year I retired as a Dallas Cowboy. What an incredible story of persistence as well and that the bus basically has a guy who ought to be in the Hall of Fame uh, blocking for him as he got as he got his trophy as a ceremony. One thing that's pervasive about all this obviously is how important football was in your life to give you a reason for being. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah man football was pretty much my life as a kid growing up and it was basically the tool I was going to use, use to leave the inner city of Goose where I grew up at and um it gave me an opportunity to go off to college and, and see the world, you know. And if, if it wasn't for football, I wouldn't be standing here today. I know by, by me playing football, that's why I'm here today. So you retired in 99, and you've set the rest of your amazing career basically mentoring at-risk youth. Talk about it a bit. Yeah, when I retired, man, I went back uh, to Miami, and my whole goal was to kind of reach back and give back to the community. You know, a lot of football players, they say they don't really go back home. Well, I went back home. Um, to the inner city, and I started a program called TLC, Tim Lester Cares, that mentored, tutored at-risk athletes, and I pretty much prepared them to, to pass their SAT. And uh, I got to the point where, you know what, I felt like I needed to reach them younger. So uh, I started a youth football league in Georgia called Newfound Life, and uh, what we do now, we, we offer free football for kids, all kids, and uh, give them the opportunity just to learn the life lessons we learned through football. And tell us how this came to your idea to create the Milton Steelers, to waive the fees, to get involved, to allow parents the opportunity to have their kids uh, under your tutelage? 
Well, my whole thing was, man, I wanted to kind of, I know if I take the money, I could take the politics out. Yeah. And so by, you know, freeing up the money and being able to get any kid, it didn't matter if he could afford or he couldn't. Um, that was something that God put on my heart. And I really wanted to impact the community. You know, living in my community, a lot of people have a lot of money, right? But then there's some kids who don't have the money. So I wanted to get all those kids on the same field. So I waived the fee, um, fortunately, because we got some good sponsors. And we were able to offer those kids free football. And um, we teach them life lessons while we're teaching them how to tackle and how to block. If you really care, man, about making a difference, man, it, all it takes is some time, you know, put in the time. And um, that's kind of what I do. I was kind of committed my whole life, man, to um, just serving our youth and giving back to our community. You know, God blessed me to play eight years in the NFL. Yeah. And I'm thankful to be here. But at the end of the day, man, I still owe other people the same chance I got. Well, you can tell from the two interviews that Paul Tagliabu is the glue that held the NFL together, and Tim Lester was part of the indomitable spirit that made the NFL work. Let's talk about tech and the Sports Tech Minute. Bally's buying fantasy sports company Monkey Knife Fight in an all-stock deal worth about $90 million, the company's latest acquisition to improve its position in U.S. sports betting. Monkey Knife Fight immediately received exercisable warrants to purchase up to approximately $50 million in Bally stock, plus the right to purchase another $40 million over the next two years. Sportico noted that it's been a dramatic few years and few months for Bally's. Casino company Twin River Worldwide Holdings purchased the name in October and rebranded itself as Bally's Corp. A month later, the company agreed to buy sports betting platform Bet.Works for $125 million and acquired the naming rights to 21 Sinclair Regional Sports Networks. Found that in 2018, Monkey Knife Fight has grown quickly into the country's third largest daily fantasy sports operator behind DraftKings and FanDuel. The company, roughly 180,000 registered users and 80,000 depositing players, Bally said. Monkey Knife Fight operates in 37 states, plus Canada and Washington, D.C., which should give Bally's valuable geographic customer data. And finally, Good Sports 5, themed around NFL, Super Bowl, and obviously the pandemic. The NFL calling for all hands on deck in order to keep its community and charitable events for Super Bowl on schedule. This week, through the NFL's Inspire Change initiative, Jefferson High students will be discussing black trailblazers through EverFi's 306 African American History Program. Funded by the league, the program will also have a panel of NFL players participating and getting involved with the kids. Ahead of Super Bowl 55, the Buccaneers host committee and Super Bowl establishing a comprehensive health and wellness program benefiting children in the East Tampa community. Only one of numerous charitable initiatives going on throughout the week in Tampa, both in person where possible and virtually. Dave Portney, Portnoy's Barstool Sports Fund, he set up for small business is booming. 34% of small businesses turning a profit in early December figured down from 55%. While Portnoy won't be able to help every small business, it's a cool idea. Conor McGregor Sports and Entertainment donated 500000 to the Good Fight Foundation. All proceeds going to charity. Not only has Conor made waves in the fight game and business game, but he's stepping gingerly and aggressively, though, in the pandemic realm as well. Finally, ESPN CBS expanding their Black History Month initiatives. 
Programming includes a new documentary on February 11 entitled Big House, The Pearl, and the Triumph of Winston-Salem State. A lot of other events, obviously, with great storytellers and great themes. Well, that's it for this week at a frenetic Super Bowl 55. It's virtual, but it is a great event and a great American tradition. Thanks to, obviously, Paul Tagliabue and honoring the memory of Tim Lester. And we'll join you next week when we continue to keep score. Action Images is the global multimedia sports agency of Reuters. Leagues, teams and federations around the world rely on Action Images to create, distribute and monetize their content. Action Images' global footprint means sports media expertise is never far away. For more information, visit actionimages.com.